uh, not not going to do a long and lengthy introduction, but I suppose you know the the title of the event begs the question of you know what is good money, and I suppose from the perspective of our members, it seems to me that there's something very basic about making money work for the masses, making money work for all, and ensuring that it is not the preserve of the few. I know that's very simplistic, but I think that's very much how. CDFIs will often view this agenda, and I think there are sort of three A's that spring to mind. Access, affordability, and appropriateness. Now, of course, there are many other things, too, that one would encapsulate under the umbrella of good, but for me, those uh, certainly seem ones to hang on to. And I think there is a very real challenge associated, uh, and I'm sure we're going to hear about that tonight, in balancing the provision of um, what is higher risk, often unsecured credit, uh, with what we might regard as ethically acceptable, desirable, or even um, something that plays very much to the common good. It is not a completely straightforward agenda. Um, but equally, never has the idea of kind of good money, I think, been so high up the policy and uh, political uh, agendas that are, are driving things forward at the moment uh, in, in the UK. And there isn't a day, I think, that goes by without us hearing of yet another government scheme intended very much to drive what we might call good money out into those areas that traditional providers are unable to reach that isn't working. We have obviously funding for lending scheme, we're certainly very involved in the Emerging Business Bank, which is also seeking to address at least some of those structural challenges. Um, and then of course we have the well-documented views of our current Archbishop of Canterbury, who I know is featuring at an institute uh, event uh, next week, and you know, I think it's been very welcome, certainly from the community finance perspective, to have the clergy so actively now engaged in, in this agenda. Just uh, very briefly about CDFIs, CDFA, we are the trade body for uh, about 60 community development finance institutions around all four nations in the UK. Um, <clears throat> they are lending about £220 million a year between them. Um, covering uh, personal lending, uh, SME, and uh, sort of non-profit community social enterprise markets. £220 million a year. However, uh, why not more? Given last year they recorded a surge of 88% increase in the demand presented to them. Uh, the simple answer as to why not more is lack of available capital. Uh, so we obviously have a very keen interest in exploring ways in which our CDFI members can better access uh, some of those sources of funds that their customers are so desperately in, in, in need of. So I think it's more pressing than ever that that flow is increased. We need good money uh, more than ever before. And I think, you know, within that context, I'm really pleased to welcome our four contributors uh, uh, of uh, this evening. They will all have different perspectives, um, but they all share an interest in, uh, and I think absolute relevance to, 
uh, the uh, agenda that's up for debate tonight. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Danielle Walker-Palmer, who's director of the Friends Provident Association. Danielle. Thank you, Ben. I, I will stand up because it's quite flat and I can't see your sort of expressions as I, I speak. So uh, also, I, I, Ben can't catch my eye to shut me up quite so easily if I stand up. So uh, thank you very much, Ben, for the introduction. Um, I thought it might be helpful to introduce Friends Provident Foundation to you um, uh, because I've got a providence on this panel. Um, <laughs> uh, Friends Provident uh, was established by Quakers in Ackworth in Yorkshire. Um, in uh, 18, now, 34, that's tricky. I hope no one's here with Friends Provident because I can't remember the date. 1834, let's say. And um, it was set up as a, as a mutual. And it was very much about ensuring and, and trying to actually look after a, a, a master's family who, that was uh, bereft at the time. So it was very much set up as a mutual, uh, mutual aid society. And it grew from there to be a, a, a large uh, insurance and asset management company. Um, we were established in 2002 as a foundation uh, from the demutualization of Friends Provident um, when it was listed. And uh, as you will probably realize, Friends Provident actually has gone through a number of iterations since and now no longer exists as an individual company in the UK, it's Friends Life. But we still exist as a foundation. We were established as an independent charity. We were endowed by Friends Provident with a demutualized from unclaimed share, so we were a kind of, uh, yes, asset. Uh, we were given free assets at the time. And, and we managed those to give us an income that we, uh, give, we use for grant making. Um, and in 2004, uh, my trustees decided to um, really, uh, they're interested in how money, and I suppose this is an experiment in good money, and how money and financial systems can actually deliver um, social um, value alongside uh, economic goods and services. Obviously, Friends Provident established Stewardship Fund, which was one of the first ethical funds in the UK. And in some ways, this is a philanthropic experiment, taking it forward in a philanthropic sphere. So we have an interest in the right use of money, as we call it. It's our overarching interest. But we specifically focused on financial inclusion or financial exclusion um, in 2004. And bizarrely, though, we're not a huge foundation. We only have about a million pounds. Uh, with a good wind behind us with the, uh, the market as it stands to give away here, we are actually one of the largest funders of financial inclusion work in the UK uh, for, uh, well, from 2004 to 20, uh, uh, 2012 when we uh, closed that program. Um, and we did a whole range of things. We both funded practical projects as well as research, as well as engaging actively in the policy process. So, uh, government was very engaged in this uh, agenda for quite a number of years and uh, we served on financial inclusion task force and we were worked in the, on the, with the FSA on financial capability. So we've been very engaged in this agenda for quite a long time. Um, we define financial inclusion as um, access to money advice, banking, affordable credit and savings and it's really looking at how low income families get access to these sorts of resources. That's our fundamental interest. We weren't interested in the squeeze middle at all. Uh, we were interested, in, uh, I, no, I won't go in, uh, we, we call it the squash bottom. The people who really get completely left out of the equation, who quite often are not consuming. Uh, they're not low income consumers, because they're not consuming at all. And sometimes that's a very rational decision. So we had a, a long focus on this client group, and it gave us uh, access, I think, to some deep questions um, and uh, understandings of what's going on um, in, in the market. Um, 
I think it also led us to have some rather strange alliances and some interesting insights and conflicts and conclusions in this, being completely focused on one client group. For instance, um, to be honest, for this client group, banking can be bad for you. Um, it was a very, bit of a shock, but the reality is um, a lot of people who go, came into banking, and we had Financial Inclusion Task Force was delighted to see the number of people who came into banking over that period. A lot of them come out again. And they come out again because, in fact, they start incurring quite a lot of, of problems with, uh, for instance, Mr. Direct Debit Fees, um, and really having a hard time managing these things that we actually all use quite a lot of the time. I'm not saying that always uh, banking is bad. I'm not saying always direct debits are bad. But to be honest, if you don't have control of your income, if the government's paying it or someone else's, uh, you have very uh, periodic or fluctuating income, someone taking money out of your bank account at the same time every month may not be the best thing for you. Uh, and that's the reality. And it's really about trying to encourage people to have different kinds of options available to them. Um, and also, to be honest, payday lending really wasn't on our agenda. I know it's a huge public policy interest, and there was a lot of political right, uh, very angry political interest in it. Uh, but the reality is, low-income people that we were interested in hardly use payday lending, because to be honest, they, they fall out of the system. Payday lenders won't lend to them, um, in some cases, because they are so low-income. Obviously, that's, that does vary, but in fact, um, I think looking at why people are borrowing and the types of people borrowing, it actually is operating at a different level than some of these very low income uh, groups that we were interested in. Um, so the last few years of our program, we actually started focusing on what would it look like if we had financial inclusion? What would people be able to do that they can't do now? Um, and uh, we commissioned uh, uh, quite a lot of work at the university and worked with community organisations to try to address what that vision, that vision for financial inclusion might look like. Um, and we came up with a formula which focused on needs, not on products. So it wasn't saying we're looking at high cost lending or we're looking at a particular kind of debt advice. We actually said, well, what do people need? Um, what, do, what, is the, what is the basics of that? And we came up with a six point plan um, which um, is quite simple in some ways, um, but it's really about, first of all, an account to receive income and to pay things out of, a way of moving money around, whatever that is, um, a way of smoothing income and meeting regular commitments and smoothing regular commitments. Uh, four is a way of savings, very tiny amounts. So uh, quite often savings debates start going off into the stratosphere and talking about pensions. We're talking about if you have a couple of quid, where do you put it? a safe place to put a couple of quid. Um, lower cost alternatives to high cost lending is absolutely vital because people there have very little choice quite often in the market in terms of where they borrow. And assertive regulation that is aware of the needs of low income consumers um, or non-consumers and making sure the market is porous to them so the market isn't, um, isn't resisting their entry. So that's our kind of vision for what financial inclusion would look like. This is very much focused on, on need, what people need to be able to do. It's not focused on whether they have a bank account. To be honest, a lot of people don't like bank accounts, and they actually find other ways of, move, of keeping their money. Um, and in fact, we found there's a whole range of other things coming through onto the market from mobile phone companies, which people feel much more comfortable with, with linked accounts, and being able to move money in, in that kind of way. And I think if you actually do focus on needs as opposed to um, products, 
the possibility of being more creative uh, emerges. Um, and what emerges as well is the biggest market failure is the lack of products to meet the needs of low-income uh, consumers. It's just there's nothing, there's hardly anything there. And it's very hard to assemble things that actually meet those needs. Um, and particularly um, focusing on what my trustees distilled as choice and control. Um, Low-income people absolutely need absolute iron control of their money. They have very little of it. Um, if you ask me how much I have in my bank account, to be honest, I can't tell you. But there are people who absolutely know to the last penny how much money they've got because they need to know. And they will not have enough money uh, to do X if they don't know exactly how much money they've got. So quite often people don't like banking. They take all the money out so they can see it, count it, and distribute it as they need to. And that is a reality if people need iron control of money. So direct debits aren't particularly helpful. But we did find that push payments, people could actually make payments when they're able to. That's actually quite a, an empowering uh, and useful approach. And, and choice. Um, the reality is the option to pick um, more than one product is something that, in fact, we complain about it. We have so much choice. Um, Low-income households quite often don't have very much choice at all. So the campaigns to, in some ways, restrict or get rid of or ban high-cost credit at this stage feel a bit uh, premature because the reality is you're moving someone's choice from like one to none because there is no alternative. So in some ways we've not joined with those campaigns because we feel there actually is a lot more work that needs to happen before you can actually ban high cost credit. credit. I'm looking forward to debating that a bit later. So what we would argue in the, one of the outcomes from our program is the social project of financial inclusion is really about building alternatives to give people proper choice and proper control of their finances. This is what it looks like. This is the vision. It's choice and control. Um, and it is possible um, and it's really vital to build organisations like CDFIs, uh, as Ben outlined, or credit unions to help them actually build, be proper um, alternatives to provident financial or, for it, if you will, Wonga. Um, we actually have funded um, pilot projects um, by a credit union, two credit unions actually, um, that both are coming up with alternatives to both Bright House and um, high cost credit. So, so it is possible to do that. It is possible to come up with alternatives and we've got to get behind those alternatives. Um, in the 1990s, choice and control were, were the watchwords of the disability unit, uh, uh, movement and it was a very powerful galvanising set of, uh, of concerns. And I think one of the insights from our program would be that uh, financial systems should also be enabling, not disabling. And if we can build um, choice and control for low-income households, that would be a good use of money. Thank you. Thank you, Danielle. Um, very good. Only one minute over. Uh, we're going to go straight through to hear from our other panellists before uh, opening it up for, for debate. So... Very pleased to welcome Peter Crook, Chief Executive of Provident Financial. Peter Lecter. Thanks, Ben, and uh, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Come stand over here and get a good shot of me on the camera. So, uh, very pleased to, to be here at the CCLA. Thank you for the invitation. So, I'd just like to take a few minutes to tell you a little more about Provident Financial and why I believe we're part of a good money story. So. <laughs> A little bit more about Provident, I mean similar to Friends Provident actually, we uh, 
also started in Yorkshire in the 1800s, 1880 in our case. Um, but Provident is now a stock exchange listed company. We're part of the FTSE 250 index listed on the LSE. In fact, I think we're around the 135th largest uh, company uh, listed on the London market. We serve around 2.8 million customers. We have a market capitalization for so the company's worth around £2 billion. And the dividends that come out of our profits support the incomes of millions of pensioners in retirement through the fund managers that own our shares. It's also worth mentioning we uh, provide work for around 15,000 people in the UK and the Republic of Ireland. So we're a successful company and we've operated that way for 130 years and like all successful companies I believe we are successful because we meet the needs of our customers and we do it in a, a way that means uh, we continue to serve uh, new and existing customers. Our customer satisfaction levels run well over 90%. So I believe we are successful. Uh, we do what we do because ultimately we provide a good service to our customers and they're highly satisfied with us. Now clearly people who want to borrow small sums of credit such as we provide and we're typically lending three to four hundred pounds in our uh, home collective credit business or perhaps six to seven hundred pounds in our credit card business. They're never going to be the wealthiest in society in terms of where the demand for those sorts of sums of credit are. And they are going to pay more for credit than people who are slightly better off because unfortunately the cost of delivering that model responsibly incurs greater cost in terms of underwriting <coughs> credit and also in terms of collecting installments back uh, than a mainstream lender would do. It's also fair to say if you buy things in small amounts it always costs more than if you buy it in large amounts. So last time I looked a pint of milk delivered to the house, to the door, uh, by the local milkman, certainly where I live, was about 80 pence a pint. Now, if you buy a six pint bottle from Tesco's uh, and go and collect it yourself from the supermarket and take it home, it's about £1.79, so it's less than 30p a pint compared to 80. And I suppose that's a good example from my perspective as to why um, things do cost a little bit more when you borrow them in small amounts and clearly you have the uh, the responsibility to uh, lend responsibly as customers indeed have the responsibility to, to borrow responsibly. So I guess that presents us with a bit of a dilemma. How do we satisfy legitimate uh, demand for credit from the less well-off? So what, what does good supply mean, I guess, in, in other words? Well, I know there are lots of different views on this subject. Um, some people believe that those on low income should refrain from borrowing at all. I tend to dis disagree with that. I think, as uh, Ben said in his introduction, access is really important. I believe everybody who is good for the credit and can borrow responsibly deserves some options and some choice in terms of how they obtain that credit. Uh, others suggest that less well-off uh, customers should perhaps save up beforehand and rely on their savings uh, when they experience the need to perhaps... Uh, spend on a one-off item such as a lot of our credits used for but again it seems a bit unreasonable to me to expect the less well-off those are who are least able to save uh, reasonable amounts uh, to have to save up over long periods of time in order to access the sort of things that uh, better off consumers can uh, easily obtain credit for. Uh, some say that credit unions are the answer and let me be clear we support the credit union movement we support the third sector and CDF CDFIs and in fact my team have lent a lot of time and expertise to organisations such as East Slank's Moneyline, uh, one of the members of the CDFA, in order to get them off the ground. But at the end of the day, credit unions don't meet the needs for everybody. Clearly, they encourage savings. They have got cap rates for borrowing, and there's work underway clearly to 
to look at that and expand the sector, but they're not appropriate for everybody. And indeed, they would be unable to lend, I suggest, to many of the customers that we are able to lend to because of the model that we have. Finally, I guess other beliefs that uh, capping the cost of credit is the answer. I think there's a large body of evidence on this, and I was very pleased to see the report from Bristol University's Personal Finance Research Centre, which was published in March, which concluded, again, after many previous reports looking at this, that capping the cost of credit ultimately harms the very people it's designed to help. It stifles supply of credit to the most vulnerable consumers in society. It tends to choke off any kind of innovation or diversity or development in markets. Um, it reduces transparency, and certainly for Provident, when we have a very clear and simple offer, you'll find lenders in price cap markets unbundle pricing, create back-end hidden fees and charges to try and circumvent caps. And at the end of all that, organised crime tends to fill the gap that's left. And I was very pleased to see that report conclude the same as, uh, as previous reviews of this sort of issue would have. Um, it's fair to say that our customers do have some choice. And when I look at the range of products available to our customers, they do include home credit lending, both from us and the other 500 home credit lenders that operate in our space. They include credit cards aimed at lower income consumers, and we have a credit card business of our own, which is becoming the larger part, I have to say, of what Provident uh, does. They have choice through the pawnbroking market, through mail order credit, through rent to own, and indeed through payday lending. Although I would agree with Danielle, payday lending is very much taking business from the high street banks. Don't be fooled into thinking payday lenders are subprime lenders. They're taking business from bank overdraft lending, where the banks are very tight on credit, and payday lenders, whilst not all operating to the highest standards, are clearly filling a gap in the marketplace left by the high street banks. So let me just talk about um, those lines of business which we operate within that marketplace. Uh, obviously, some types of this credit have a very long history, going back hundreds of years, while some are more recent. Some have very well-established regulatory regimes, they have well-established trade bodies, and others don't. Uh, so Provident has two product offerings within this broader marketplace. Uh, home collector credit I'll come back to in a moment. Uh, firstly, we do have a non-standard credit card product from our Vanquist Bank operation. So our credit card is purpose-designed to suit the, meets, the needs of certain types of customers, customers who are less well-off, customers who may have a thin credit file, so very little credit history, or an incomplete credit history, the customers who may have had credit problems in the past but are now over them. Customers, in short, who are likely to be turned down by the high street banks. Now, some may feel that being turned down for a credit card would be no, less, no bad thing for the less well-off. But without a credit card, it's quite difficult to participate in modern life in many respects. And it's particularly difficult to access the best value deals that you and I find on the internet. As we all know, if you want to book flights on a low-cost airline, you can't pay with £20 notes. Inevitably, you need plastic to pay. And if you haven't saved up for a period of time ahead of time, then a credit card does provide a product with great utilities for consumers, as long as it's lent responsibly. Indeed, the consumer uses it uh, responsibly. So Providence thinking on credit cards has been to tailor make our credit card products to meet the specific needs of less well-off customers with average to below average incomes. In other words, to supply uh, good supply to meet that good demand. And our card has a number of features that differentiate it from more mainstream credit cards. So we've got much lower credit lines than mainstream card issuers. We don't actually market our cards with high credit limits, with 0% offers, with teaser rates, with free gifts, with points programs. We advertise what the interest rate is and we typically start people with a credit limit as low as £250. Our customers pay us a higher percentage of the balance every month. The minimum payments on our cards 
the average we receive across our customers is around 13%. So people are paying off the fees and charges and a decent chunk of the principal typically each month. Finally, we have a much higher level of contact with our customers. We're the only credit card issuer that interviews every customer on the phone at the point of application. Nobody else operates that model in the UK. Again, that's not the lowest cost way of doing business, though we think it's an important part of lending responsibly. And indeed, we only accept around one in four applications into our Vanquist Bank operations. Now, with less well-off customers, clearly we do experience higher levels of bad debt, and we have higher levels of contact with our customers. So our APR uh, that we charge on the Vanquist credit card product is 39.9%. So it's somewhat higher than a mainstream credit card, but given the level of risk, I contend that it's a good interest rate. Indeed, it's a slightly lower interest rate than the new rate being consulted upon uh, for credit union lending. So one of the main effects Vanquist Bank customers have experienced is that if they keep their credit card accounts up to date, they can rehabilitate their credit record, rebuild their credit history, and so in future be able to choose credit products from a wider stream of mainstream suppliers. So that's Vanquist. Finally, let's talk about our traditional business. So home credit stretches back to the company's foundation in 1880. It's tailor-made to meet the needs of its customers. The loans are for small sums, so typically a few hundred pounds, which customers do want. It's not a few thousand pounds, which usually our customers do not want. And again, we operate stringent credit checks. We only accept about one in five requests for a home credit loan. So Providence is turning down four out of five applications for home collective credit. Uh, the loan is delivered to the customer's home and underwritten by one of our agents, and repayments are collected from their home every week. And our agent will carry out a pretty thorough assessment of whether the customer can afford the loan or not, exploring how much money comes into the household, how safe, secure and persistent that income is going to be, what the household bills look like, it's the sharpest tool in the box, really, for dealing with customers who derive their incomes often from hourly paid work, but different amounts of money can be earned every week. We only pay our agents based on what they collect, not on what they lend. They're not rewarded for sales, so it's in their interest not to lend more to a customer than the customer can afford to repay. And the total amount is fixed at the outset, so it never rises. We don't have any hidden fees or charges. We don't have any daily interest. Uh, what the customer owes at the start of a provident loan will never go up. So very different, very different to payday lending where rollovers add fresh charges each time and increasingly a customer's debt can spiral out of control if it's not serviced properly. What we see in terms of financial difficulties is usually because of life events such as uh, unemployment, family breakdown or illness rather than poor lending decisions. Because we do the lending face to face in the customer's home, we don't have too many won't pay bad debts as opposed to can't pay if I can characterise it like that. We only lend small amounts to new customers until they get used to us and they show they can manage a weekly repayment. And by operating that model, ultimately, we keep bad debt in check and we can lend to people that perhaps some of the credit unions and third sectors can't. So by structuring our product in this way, I think we have good supply of credit to meet the good demand, and we don't want to meet demand that's not good, from people who want small sums of credit with a very high service level tailored to their needs. Our typical loan would be for a few hundred pounds over a year. So if you borrow £300 from us, you're going to repay just over £10 every week. That equates to an APR of 272%. So it is a high APR, but to turn the cost structure into our, of our business, all that labour cost of paying one of our ladies to visit somebody every week for a year into the time value of money, in effect, in an APR is not particularly representative or helpful, I don't think. Our customers certainly don't um, appreciate the APR in terms of helping them understand 
what the uh, loan really costs and in fact it perhaps should be replaced with a total cost of credit uh, in pounds and pence which certainly our customers more readily would understand. Home credit's popular so we have 1.8 million customers in the UK. We call on about one household in 20 in the UK every week and we have customer satisfaction ratings as I mentioned earlier of well over 90%. We do aspire to be a good corporate citizen as well so just to say we have a long-standing CR program I personally take charge of that program clearly a, a very important part of that is aiming to lend responsibly and have processes in place to ensure we do so we aim to be an employer of choice and provide opportunities for employees to develop we aim to minimize our effects on the environment and we monitor that very uh, accurately and we pay our fair share of corporation tax so the tax we pay in cash to Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs equates to the national tax rate. We also have a good neighbour community outreach programme. We invest 1% of our profits in local community projects in the neighbourhoods where our customers and our staff and our agents live. So it makes a real difference to them. We also support, as Ben will know, the money advice and financial education services. And I'm pleased that our work to be regarded as a good corporate citizen has been recognised by inclusion in indices such as the FTSE for Good, Providence has been a joint first place globally amongst financial institutions in that index through 2011 and 2012. We're also recognised in other indices such as the Dow Jones Sustainability uh, Index. So I hope that gives you a feel for what Providence does. I've probably overrun slightly. And where we fit in getting good amounts of appropriate good money into the hands of less well-off consumers. I look forward to the debate shortly. And now, um, pleased to uh, welcome the third of, of our speakers, Anthony Macro-Wood, who is president of ABCO, which is the counterpart to CDFA for Credit Union. Uh, um, I was president of ABCO. Was, was ex-president, but still very active. Anthony. Yes, I'm uh, Anthony Macro-Wood, a parish priest, but I've been a director of three different credit unions, and for 10 years I was on the board of the Association of British Credit Unions Limited, and the, for three years the president. I stepped down about a year ago. Now, I was first introduced to credit unions <coughs> as a curate in an estate in Swindon. It was uh, the Parks and Walcott estate. It was what we used to call an urban priority area estate. 14,000 people. It had been built by the GLC to house London Overspill. And uh, when I arrived in the early 90s, there was a shopping centre in the middle of the estate which used to have two high street banks, but they'd pulled out in the late 1980s when banks switched from thinking that they were there to offer a service to people to being all about profit. And for bank branches in an area like Parts and Walcott, they weren't as profitable, so they pulled out. Which meant people on that estate, if they wanted to use a financial service other than the post office, uh, they had to get on a bus to go into the town centre. That was a £1.30 return bus fare. And if they just wanted to pay £5 a week into a building society, that was a high cost to pay for that. Now, there was a chap on the estate who'd worked for an American company that had an employee-based credit union. So he knew about credit unions, and I was a chartered accountant, so I knew about finance. So we got a group together, and we set up a, a credit union. And within three years, we had 700 members, which was 5% of the population of that estate. And we were changing lives. For the first time, people didn't fear if the washing machine broke down. Uh, they didn't fear immediate uh, destitution when they lost a job. And for some people, they were going on foreign holidays for the first time ever. 
and so it gave a graphic uh, illustration to me of what credit unions could do. So what are credit unions? Well, they're savings and loans cooperatives, essentially. And in statute, they have four objectives. One, to, for the promotion of thrift. That's a lovely word, on old words, isn't it? Promotion of thrift, to help thrift, help people build their savings. Secondly, to offer loans at a reasonable, affordable rate. And then, thirdly, for the, to use members' savings for the mutual benefits of their mutual societies, and finally, to financially help the financial education of their members. So savings, loans, mutual benefit and financial education. And there are th three types of credit union. There's live and work common bonded credit unions where you all live and work in a particular locality. There's an employee-based credit union working for a particular employer. And then there's an associational credit union where you all belong to a club, like a tennis club. And by virtue of belonging to that club, you can form a credit union, something like that. Now, from the Parks and Walcott experience, sir, I could see that with 700 members, you could run a credit union with just volunteers. Once you get above that, you start to need paid staff, and then, it be, then sustainability becomes an issue until you're much larger than 700 members. You need uh, 5,000 plus members if you're going to start taking on paid staff to make that a sustainable business. And uh, a decade ago, ABCOR realised that in order to achieve their social objectives, credit unions had to build sustainable, viable businesses. And to build a sustainable, viable business, we realised there were four things we had to put in place. Firstly, proportionate legislation. So we really lobbied at the time of the FSA coming into existence to make sure that that part that was going to regulate credit unions was proportionate to what we were doing. And in, uh, enabling legislation was also part of that because you may have noticed just over a year ago we had the legislative reform order which introduced some crucial changes to credit union law when uh, we can now, uh, there's greater flexibility in the types of common bonds you can have. You can mix and match a live and work and an associational common bond. You can now offer savings on interest up to that point. You could only uh, give a dividend from, the, from the, the, the surplus at the end of the year. So you couldn't advertise a savings rate to members, whereas now you can. You can offer interest on savings if you have sufficient capital. And the other thing that that legislation brought in was uh, the ability to have 10% corporate members so that you can serve community, uh, institutions uh, and businesses in, in the area of the common bond. So that was enabling legislation. Then we realised that credit unions needed strong governance and sound management. And so we introduced a lot of online training courses to improve the quality of credit union governance, of the director's knowledge. And uh, we also introduced a, a code of corporate governance. And if credit union boards follow that code of corporate governance, then they're doing a good job in terms, they all know they'll be doing a good job in terms of running their credit union. Once you've got those two planks in place, the next thing was a right business model. And we realised that needs a cross-section of society. You cannot build a viable business just serving the poor. You have to uh, get a cross-section of society using credit unions and to attract a cross-section of society, you need the right products and services. And as previous speakers have alluded, in this day and age, that means being, off, being able to offer uh, bits of plastic so you can do internet shopping, so that you can uh, you use uh, cash point machines, uh, and also internet access to manage your, your accounts. So it's the right products and services. And to do that, again, the fourth bank is appropriate investment, and that's what we're beginning to get into the sector. And governments wanted to help us in that. The Labour government had the Growth Fund, which went from 2006 to 2011, which partly came out of the Financial Inclusion Task Force. And 
Research evaluating that has shown that the average borrower who came to a credit union through the growth fund and had a growth fund loan saved about £400 in interest on, over the lifetime of their loan using a credit union loan as opposed to other forms of credit. And uh, over 200,000 people came into credit unions through that. And so in total, it saved around about £170 million, which is roughly what the government had put into the growth fund. So in terms of, of uh, payback for what they put in, it, in, in terms of social benefit, it was an enormously effective uh, programme. And the present government saw that and thought, we want to help expand credit unions. And they've just announced the credit union expansion project and uh, part of that is a recognition we've got to drive down costs. So if we can get credit unions to work together on things like debt collection, on things like a, a credit union scoring card, a credit rating scoring card for credit unions, unique for credit unions that is being fed with live data and so constantly being updated. Things like working together can drive down costs. So we're trying to get credit unions to collaborate. Abcol set up a company appropriately called Cornerstone Mutual Services to, as a vehicle for doing that. And also there's an investment in a back office based on a tier one banking platform which will provide the, the bits of plastic, the, the, the account management that, is, that people need if, they're going to, if we're going to appeal to a wider cross-section of society. So it's a full banking service will be produced uh, and that's coming on, on stream in about two to three years' time. These measures are aimed at strengthening credit unions and extending their reach. The goal is to have full credit union coverage across the country, offering the sorts and products of services and products that you would expect from a high street bank. So that deals what I would say with the supply side of credit unions and, and credit from credit unions. The demand side, credit unions combine loans and savings. And building savings, I think, is essential for good demand. You might ask, why do people use payday lenders? And uh, I was talking with a CAB advisor, and they were saying the overwhelming reason why they use a payday lender is a change in life circumstance. They've lost their job, a relationship has broken up. Uh, and then similarly, why do we have nearly half a million people reliant on food banks? And an article on radio this week about uh, you know, they come off benefits, they're starting a job, and they've got no income between coming off benefits and getting their first pay packet. So they're reliant on food banks. So what that tells us is that people actually have no savings. And as a, a nation, our savings rate is the lowest of, of advanced uh, countries. And I could say more about that, but I don't think I've got time. So ask me a question later. Um, but you see, credit unions ask people to build their savings. Even when you take out a loan, we say, uh, save a pound or two each week as you repay your loan. So that over time, people do build up savings. They do build up some capital, and they have something there for a rainy day, which means that then when they want a loan, it can be measured, they, they, they're coming from a good place, they're not asking for a loan out of desperation. And that gives built-in choice for those members. So savings are essential for having good demand for credit. What about credit union interest rates? Well, traditionally it was 1% per month on the reducing balance. Now, technically that's an APR of 12.68%. And I agree with one of the previous speakers that APR isn't a very good measure because for credit unions it's on the reducing balance. So if you borrowed £100 at 1% per month on reducing balance, paid it off in a year, you'd pay £6.52 in interest. Um, and that, that's significant because many lenders, they charge you the interest rate for the full balance, the full balance of the loan for the entire period. So you borrow £100, they charge you the 12.68 lump sum and then they divide £112 by, by 12 instalments, whatever. So it is very significant that credit unions are, 
you'd pay interest on the reducing balance because it actually reduces the total cost of the loan. So I agree with the previous speaker that actual total cost of loan is a much better measure than, than APR. And then about five years ago, uh, the interest rate, maximum interest rate was increased to 2%. And as Peter alluded, we're now con consulting about raising that to 3%. Now, are credit unions going to charge that on every loan? Absolutely not. But uh, some research was done that showed that the average cost of granting a loan was up to £80 per loan. And if you're only lending £500, then you have to lend that £500 an awful long period in order to recap, recoup the costs of granting that loan. That's why uh, we need to, for small loans to have the capacity to charge a higher interest rate. For larger loans, you wouldn't do that, you'd be uncompetitive anyway. But, uh, so that's why that's there. But how does this compare? Well, a CDFI for personal lending, like my home finance, would charge you about 70% uh, on a loan, APR. Doorstep lenders, typically 190 to 650%. Uh, Provident Financial, I think it was 270 you mentioned. What I would say is that a, a study a few years ago on what would a not-for-profit doorstep lending service have to charge, it was 120% APR. So my, my question might be is why do you need to charge the extra 150% and is that why you made profits of 127 million pre-tax last year? Uh, so, but having said that, you know, doorstep lenders, you pay for what you get. It's a very convenient service. The person comes to your door, they do, they come and collect the money each week. Compared, you know, for some people, they like that convenience. We had people and you know, I've seen them in the estate in Swindon. They could have come to us once a week to the collection point to use a credit union service. They preferred to have the, the man from the prodi call on their door. You know, people take their choices. It is an expensive way of getting credit because it's a highly labour-intensive way of doing business. But it's better than longer, 4,000% 4, 4, APR. Plus, and that's before you get into the penalties, but I agree with previous speakers, they're not particularly prevalent in poor estates because people's pockets aren't big enough to be exploited. Um, the, the whole premise of Wonga and the payday lenders is that you do run into trouble, you incur the penalties, and so the, the charges go on. It's money for old rope. And uh, it's a great shame that our legislators are so weak. In many parts of the states, state legislators have banned payday lenders. It's a great shame that our legislators are so weak. But the other alternative, and we see a lot of it on, on, in poorer communities, are loan sharks. And with a loan shark, you know, figures now are something like 300,000 people are in hock to loan sharks. And that's the, that's the people we know about. NHS staff are having to be trained to recognise the signs of people who are coming in with broken fingers, uh, some of them coming in with stress-related heart disease and stuff like that. Because the uh, loan sharks really are the scum uh, in, in, on these estates. They terrorise people. Then one of their tactics is to meet the children from school and accompany them home to the, to the house and then call on the door and say, how about my next loan repayment? You don't get a proper loan agreement. They're not licensed lenders. At least with the Provi, you get a proper loan agreement. You have terms and conditions you, you can fall back on. With a loan shot, you've got nothing, and they can keep adding on the charges at their whim and enforce it with violence. So we have to be aware that that's going on in our society, and that really is a huge problem. So I hope I've said enough to convince you that credit unions are the best option. And uh, which brings me back uh, to the point that in order to achieve our social objectives, we've got to build a sustainable business. And we can't do that by just serving poor people. We can't be seen just as the poor man's bank. 
we need to be seen as being and to be used by everyone as a mainstream alternative. And that's our ambition over the next 20 years, to being able to offer the right products and services and countrywide coverage to be a mainstream alternative with these social objectives. And uh, Peter and I are part of an initiative to set up a credit union for the churches in this country. Uh, it was initially going to be the Anglican churches, but we're probably going to be extending to other denominations as well. And the initially that'll be for clergy, for, for licensed lay ministers, for uh, employees of the churches, and for trustees of, of charities of like parishes, parish PCC members and things. Uh, but then it'll, gradually it will extend out to all active church members. And it's obviously going to offer financial benefits uh, to people to use the credit union. But one of the real reasons why I'm doing it is because I want to, to get a group like that using a credit union as a mainstream alternative, as a way of spreading the news that credit unions can be for everyone. Thank you. I'm going to uh, sort of partially stand up here so I can actually see uh, everybody. We've got about uh, 25 minutes um, before we hear from Bishop Peter Selby. Um, who is going to comment, critique, reflect, draw on obviously his own views uh, before we conclude tonight. So 25 minutes. Um, I propose to take questions in twos or threes. Are, could people give an indication of whether there are comments, questions, points they'd like to make? Not. Okay, well, let's, let's start with you two. If, we could, if you could just say who you are, so where you're from and who you are as well. Okay, uh, my name's Carl Hackman, I'm a journalist. And I've got three questions to ask Peter. That's okay. They're very short questions, but I hope that spurs some debate. How exactly does the total cost of, a cap on the total cost of credit cause transparency problems? I can understand why an interest rate cap would... Uh, would lead perhaps to backdoor fiddling and raising of administrative charges, but I don't see exactly how you can justify saying that cap on the total cost of credit can cause those transparency problems. I'd also like to know from you what a loan of £100 costs in pounds and pence, because you didn't actually say. And also I'd like you to, uh, if you can remember back from 2010, what you said exactly about the spending review cuts and what that did to your customer base and how it grew, if you could. Okay, thank you. Before Peter, we get on to that, could we hear the other question from Mine really is, is a, an offer of resources rather than so much in the way of question, although being uh, a former school teacher, I can turn any comments into a question if you really want to. Uh, I'm John Courtenage, I'm a Quaker and a cooperator. And for people that like a bit of local interest, I was the Labour Party candidate in the City of London elections just across the street here a couple of months ago when I, inverted commas, lost by 50 votes. But that's only because the winning candidates won by 75 votes to 12, so it's a pretty narrow thing. Uh, the resources. Um, Friends Provident, according to the book which Daniel kindly sent me from our Quaker and Quakers and Money event, pretty close, 1832. Yeah, thank you. Um, the reason I'm talking is that I've put together a possible definition of what good money is, because I'm a chemist and you know we do definitions. And I'll email that to, uh, to Robert 
for your interest, as it were. But I take the, the comment in here from Stephen Sykes from the Church um, Commission that money is better described as a verb rather than a noun. In other words, money is what it does rather than what it is. And the final resource then is this book. Uh, it's The Spirit Level. Has anybody in the room seen The Spirit Level? And the Equality Trust website. The key social good is closing the income gap between the so-called rich and the so-called poor in any society. And so I encourage all of our speakers to try and think about how and if the services that they're offering can close sustainably the gap between the rich and the poor rather than either cause it to exist or worse yet to cause it to grow because if we can sustainably close the gap between the rich and the poor, it's good for every single person in this room. Without any question, that's the evidence. Okay. Sorry that was a bit long, but that's what Quaid is doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, Peter. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Sorry, I'm just, uh, just making a few notes. Um, total cost of credit, I think, what the evidence says is it is actually very difficult to define. And if you look at the um, operation of price controls in other territories, there's very clear evidence whether they're simple interest rate caps, APR caps, or caps on the t total cost of credit, that clever, lend clever lenders, perhaps some unscrupulous lenders, will find ways around them. One of the easiest ways around controls in the domestic market is to take the business offshore. And you've seen that big time in the gambling industry where many online gambling businesses have moved to more friendly jurisdictions. In the age of the internet, you can operate a lending business from just about anywhere. That's not where we want to be. I'm very proud to be a British company operating out of Britain, as I said, paying British taxes. But I do think if you look at the evidence beyond the hype, then total you know, caps on the cost of credit are very difficult to operate. And I'm very pleased that's what Bristol found. In terms of the cost of a... Provident loan, we do most of our lending on a 52-week product, so a one-week loan. So if you borrow £100 from us, you're going to repay £3.50 per week um, for 52 weeks, which is £182 in total. Now, importantly, there are no extra fees, charges, late payment fees, spouse check fees. There's no daily interest. So what the APR never captures is all the charges you incur. For instance, if you borrow on a bank overdraft, if you go over your limit, you pay £35, as you know, for each item that bounces. You may pay a fixed fee, even if you're overdrawn for a very short space of time. So I think the, um, uh, the APR clearly is what it is, but uh, you've got to look at the total uh, cost. So in our case, uh, £82 on top of the 100 versus the cost of other forms of credit. And I think it, for the audience that we serve and the risk that we take, it compares quite favourably. Uh, just to address... Um, the point made around uh, Providence profits. Well, yes, the Joseph Roundtree report, which is a very good piece of work and we, we contributed to indeed, did find that the break-even APR on home credit earnings is around 120%. But I have to say there's some reasonably heroic costs and assumptions in that uh, model. And ultimately there is no return to shareholders. So we are a commercial organisation. Our shareholders have got £2 billion at risk in our business and we need to deliver a return to them. Uh, in order to maintain their support and their capital, which ultimately backs, backs the lending. Um, if you look at the dividend yield on provident shares, we're returning around 5% per annum to the shareholders in terms of dividend income. So 
I don't think that's excessive. Uh, to the final point, uh, since 2010, our home credit business has gone uh, slightly backwards each year. Um, in fact, it's gone a little bit more backwards this year. And that's because, in part, we've maintained very tight credit standards, so we've avoided the temptation to serve a lot of the demand that's probably not good demand that's coming at us from customers who aren't being served by the high street banks or mainstream lenders. But equally, it's fair to say demand for credit is pretty subdued in the economy at the moment, certainly amongst lower income consumers. I think what we see if we look at our own customers is uh, our customers' earnings are growing slowly, which I think is good news and is consistent with what we see more broadly in the labour market, you know, record levels of employment, etc. Uh, I think where families are really feeling the pinch at the moment is in terms of inflation and higher household bills and the money left over every week is probably somewhat less than it used to be. And that means that lenders like us are cautious. It also means that consumers are cautious. And I think families on low incomes, it's disrespectful to them to imagine that they are not that good at managing their money. Most of the families we work with are very good at managing the money. They're good at coping. They're good at managing on a tight budget. And the consequence of a lot of that is people are putting off, perhaps borrowing to spend on more discretionary items. They are tightening the belts at the moment. And as a result of that, um, uh, our business has actually contracted since 2010 in that particular home credit operation. Our credit card operation is in a slightly different place for, for reasons we can talk about if you like. If I could, Anthony, you wanted on to interest rate you. caps, I tend to agree that, that the studies do show that it, they're counterproductive. There is another way in which you can control unscrupulous lenders, and that is with the individual voluntary agreement process, whereby someone whose unsecured lending is so great that they can't cope, they can enter an individual voluntary agreement with their, their lenders. Now, I don't know if any people know about that, but they are, but they divide your debts into priority debts and non-priority debts. And your priority debts are things like, would you believe it, your tax, your council tax, all the things the government wants to take off you as a priority debt. You can't change that. Your current utility provider is a priority debt. Then the, the non-priority debt, so things like your, your, your probably loan and, and any unsecured lending with, with banks, and, and then you come to agreement with, your, with, the, with the lender to pay a, a, a proportion of that over five years, and what isn't paid over at the end of five years is written off. And most lenders tend to read it because the alternative is the person will go bankrupt, so this way they get something. And that actually is a good way of controlling irresponsible lending. Uh, and it's not without consequence to the borrower, but then the borrower has to take some responsibility for taking out those loans in the first place. The problem for credit unions is that uh, we aren't able to charge enough interest uh, on loans to, to cope with, with that situation. And one credit union I was director of until recently, we had four IVAs come in in the space of three months. And under the cred regulations, we had to write off the entire loan immediately. And that knocked out nearly £20,000 worth of capital. They were previously good members who'd run into difficulties. And we, that's punishing for a credit union, and it's really credit unions are suffering. So I would argue, though, that the, the credit unions are the only lender that are interest rate capped in this country. And as a quid pro quo for that, our legislators should exempt us or should make us a priority debt under IVAs. And if we were priority debts under IVAs, then we could continue to serve those people even if they'd been able to walk away from their provi loan and, and all the other irresponsible lenders. Thanks, Anthony. Danielle, I, I mean, both on that and also I wondered in relation to John's points, particularly around the gap, filling the gap, obviously an area of keen interest for uh, friends of COVID. Mm. I, I, I'm, I, I'm very interested in, in the point. Um, so I think actually the, the picture is actually quite confusing 
Um, if you listen to it, on, on one hand, some campaigns are saying, oh, people are borrowing to, to eat. You know, the, the, the state of, of, the, of the situation is so bad that people are absolutely borrowing for essentials. And that's a big campaigning point, particularly um, on, on some of the campaign against high-cost credit. Um, but on the other hand, we hear the statistics support the, from, from actual lenders that, in fact, uh, that's shrinking as, as a total proportion. So I think, actually, the picture is actually quite hazy and quite hard to, to understand. But I suppose our, our concern has been, you know, where is the campaign for adequate incomes? Because that cuts off <laughs> the demand for this kind of borrowing if people have adequate income. So living wage campaign is very powerful in, in London, but in fact that is very much um, a, a minority sport, really. Uh, and I think it's actually broadening some of this debate about actually how much people have in their pockets and can they live uh, lives that we recognise um, as, as lives in, in the UK um, on money they have. So I think we've been very much interested in you know, trying to support poverty campaigning um, because in some ways that is the fundamental underpinning of all of this. Um, one thing I realised working with financial inclusion with Treasury and the FSA, you can get caught up in a lot of technicalities. But the, the reality is, when it comes down to income, um, that's what we need to focus on. And, and, and I think the point about inequality um, uh, is, is actually powerfully made. Thank you. Thank you very much. No. Can, I, can I come back to something? Can I come back to something? Oh, very, very quickly. The actual quote I was after from Peter was, um, after the spending cuts, we may well see a growth in our target audience. And shares after that jumped. 5% that week. And that's what I was looking for a comment on that. So you might say that it contracted. So what are we supposed to read into that? If the if you are if you didn't grow your target audience, the shares jumped. What's the uh, what's the interpretation? There? Well, if you follow our share price to be honest, it can move around by plus or 5% in any day of any week at any time of the year. So I wouldn't pay a lot of attention to that. I think if you look at our financial results, then you'll see that we're lending slightly less money and serving slightly fewer customers. So at the end of the day, that says that uh, the market for this sort of credit is is uh, contracting a little bit. And I think if you look at one or two of the other home credit lenders, uh, we've got one other quoted peer, but smaller than us, uh, they're saying the same thing. So I, I won't pay much attention, to be honest, to uh, sort of day-to-day movements in, in anybody's share price with the sort of choppy waters we have on the stock market right now. Okay, there were various hands towards the back. Yes, in the back there. There's another one over here. Yes, Dorothy. Uh, my name is Bobo. Um, I have uh, the same view as uh, John. The other one. Um, my question is um, how and what and uh, how do you and what is uh, how do you set the interest rates so that affordable for low income. And also, in compounds to well, in religious term called usuri. Uh, I know business has to be set up to make profit, but uh, I don't mind people making so much profit. But what do you do with the profit? Um, also, I just mentioned that Barclay Bank also was fund, uh, funded by Quaker. But what Barclay Bank, uh, Barclays Bank uh, uh, did, and uh, that is. Uh, it's not very regularly in the business, and and friends uh, uh, probably don't was yes uh, set up very quicker, and I hope uh, the 
equals of pro, uh, friends programs still the same as originally intended. Thank you. Oh, it's a bank, it's a quite bank as well. <laughs> That's not advertising. <laughs> we're in it, we're in it. Oh, it's definitely my fault. Um, my name's Dorothy Newton. I'm involved with a local charity which still has set money aside for welfare grants for individuals. And what I wonder is if the speakers could look into the future. We only have part of the cuts. We've Plus the social fund loans, which a lot of people on very low incomes were recycling and living on without having to pay interest. Um, benefits are being cut. What services do we need and, and what the options you're talking about offer for people who are going to be harder and harder hit over the coming months? Thanks, Dorothy. So, how how to set interest rates, um, particularly mm -hmm. for sort of low-income communities? Big challenge. Danielle, probably <laughs> <laughs> the least qualified to uh, to to comment on that. I think from from our perspective. Um, uh, one of the things that uh, I know that low-income consumers have valued in particular is actually transparency. So in some ways, um, one of the findings of research is, uh, uh, and I think uh, Peter's uh, indicated, is that actually quite often low-income families are not as bothered about um, the price, of the actual cost. So they, that's the reality with with. Peter's product, it is a product that people do consume, people like the way it works, or they certainly seem to, they, they consume it, um, and um, it doesn't seem to matter in some ways uh, that uh, the APR or, or that kind of cost. Um, it is very much about the features of the product, um, and I think that it poses some, some difficulties uh, in some, in some uh, ways. Um, I was very interested in the the Joseph Browntree Foundation uh, piece of work on um, a, a not-for-profit uh, doorstep lender. One of the difficulties they found, in fact, was that um, it, you could create a not-for-profit uh, doorstep lender, but there's no one who would put money into it. Reputationally, it looked a nightmare. I mean, who would who would do that? Um, uh, would it be a, a, a charity, a foundation like me? So, yes, we're going to support something that's going to charge 120% interest. It's not going to happen. Uh, would Lloyd's do that? Um, and so there's the real difficulties in actually charging an interest rate um, or actually having a product that people really want um, to consume. So I think it actually, to be honest, um, you're asking about what the actual, how you set an interest rate. Um, I think focusing more on what people, uh, the kind of products people want um, and looking at how you price them is perhaps starting from that way around as opposed to looking at the interest rate and working down. So I think that's part of the reason we have difficulty with credit unions and CDFIs because they're very much tied to certain levels of, of really um, what we find socially acceptable interest rates uh, instead of actually pricing the product that uh, would actually be a viable product. So I think starting with need, which is what we really found, is perhaps um, a, a more creative way to actually come up with a product development. It is, it is true, I've said in the CDF experience, that it is, it is about affordability rather than uh, interest rate on it, and we're not a price sensitive market. Peter? Yeah. Um, interesting. Well, let's just look at, look at cost of delivering the service for a moment. So, if you look at our home collective credit business, the cost of the money we borrow, so what we pay to 
the providers of debt who provide the money that we lend on to customers is a fairly small component of, of the scheme of things. The real cost in our business is labour cost. So if you take a one-year loan, we pay one of our agents to visit you 52 times. In fact, the reality is it's probably 57 or 58 times because you will miss some payments along the way and the amount that you have to pay will never go up because there aren't any other hidden fees or charges. I could very easily charge an interest rate of 29.9%. Fine, no problem, but it would need uh, the customer to pay separately for the collection service, perhaps to pay if they missed uh, a payment, to perhaps to pay an application fee up front or perhaps to uh, pay something if they, uh, if they defaulted on the agreement. And you know, there are other, other lending <coughs> products which have unbundled pricing structures um, and appear to have a low rate of interest. I mean, the rent-to-own business is a good example where there's a, a range of different parts of the pricing structure. I have to tell you that is not what our customers want. They want to know where they stand. They want the cost uh, understandable so they know if they can afford that amount every week, they're never going to be caught out with other hidden fees, charges, daily interests, or get tripped up if they can't pay. Actually, if you're designing this product around customer needs, then I think an all-in price, certainly in our long history in serving uh, this uh, sort of market, uh, is that customers want to know where they are and an all-in price gives them that. But the price, to quote the price in terms of the time value of money and put an APR badge on it is a, a complete nonsense in reality because you're not pricing for the time value of your money. You're pricing for the cost of setting up the loan as, uh, as was described uh, there is a fixed cost to setting up a loan on your system and doing all the documentation that the regulator requires and that's the same whether it's £100, £1,000 or £10,000 and all that needs to be rolled in. Finally, where do our profits go? Well, we have to make a return to our shareholders. So the, the Joseph Rowntree work assumed no return whatsoever on the capital that was invested in that business and we all know there are quite significant subsidies going into uh, credit unions and the third sector. Our business is sustainable because we charge sufficient to make a profit to make a return to the providers of, of our capital. Our share price closed today around £14.80. We've paid a dividend in the last year of 77 pence, so you can work out the return. Our shareholders are receiving a yield on their <coughs> shares of around 5 or 6%, and I don't, think that's, I don't think that's excessive. And At the end of the day, our stock is owned by and large by pension funds and income funds, people who hold the stock for the dividend. Mm -hmm and those dividends go to support the incomes of millions of pensioners in retirement. Okay. So that's what happens to our profits. I can't disagree with what either of the other two speakers have said. I mean, I think you're raising a very big issue, particularly with the universal credit coming along. And the thing that really scares me about that is this business of paying people uh, monthly as opposed to every two weeks as they receive it now. Because what I've seen is, you know, people have a good week and a bad week. And with being paid monthly, they're going to have a good week and three bad weeks. And then you know, we're going to, uh, it is going to be quite a big social problem. And I think it, it, I think we need to ask some big, deeper questions about the nature of our society. I alluded to by the fact we don't save. You know, I looked at figures for saving in 2010 according to the IMF, and the Chinese save 54% of their GDP. The average for industrialized advanced nations is 18%. And uh, the difference, why is that different? Well, because China, you don't get, there's no free education, no free healthcare, no pensions. So if you don't save, you haven't got any means of providing for yourself. Uh, and um, 
this country, 2010 was a record year for saving. We saved 12% of GDP in response to the, to the, the crisis. Our normal rate's about 6%. So we're massively below the average for Western industrialized nations. And I suspect what that's showing is the moral hazard associated with the universal benefits that we have in this country. There's a moral hazard in that it doesn't incentivize people to save. And I think we need, I'm being quite controversial here, quite deliberately, but we need to, to think seriously about that in the long run and what it's doing to our society. Working tax credit doesn't encourage employers to pay a living wage. Pension credit, the number of pensioners now say to me, why the hell did I bother to save when so-and-so, my neighbour, didn't bother to save any money and now they're getting pension credit and they're better off than me? You know, we, we have to look at that going forward and I think it's a big issue. Maybe you could, because in some ways that, that sort of segues us into mm. the point that Dorothy was making about, so where, where are we going in these times of austerity? It sure isn't going to get easier. What, what briefly, because we, we don't have much time, what, what do you all feel? You know, does the future hold and what kind of services are going to become of paramount importance? I mean, actually, well, you I almost started talking about I really fear for some of the most vulnerable in our society, and I, I fear that loan sharks will, will fill the vacuum that uh, is going to be created with, with benefits being paid every four weeks or monthly, and uh, with, you know, uh, there not being mainstream alternatives to, to to borrow money. So I, I think there's you know, a big issue there. Peter? Well, I share the concern about universal credits. I mean, we're a, by and large a weekly business where customers pay weekly, uh, some fortnightly. So moving benefits to monthly, I think, you know, is a, an issue we're quite concerned about and we're looking quite hard at how we can help our customers uh, navigate through that, um, navigate through that change. In terms of the broader uh, environment and austerity, I, I agree with the question. I think things will remain quite tough for some time. Um, in that respect, uh, yeah, I'd expect the amount of credit we're lending to remain subdued for uh, some time. Um, so the last thing we want to do is to uh, try and grow our business into a difficult environment and lend money to people who aren't good for it. It's not good for them and it's, it's not good for us. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question about uh, that Dorothy raises, and I also I think it's really interesting in the context of this discussion. Um, one of the things we've certainly observed um, in, in trying to work on credit issues is actually trying to, to work out what the nature of credit is. Credit has actually become a social policy tool, bizarrely, in this country. We use credit, I mean, we sort of lend, theoretically, to students now. Uh, we use it, we had social fund, which also had a lending element. Uh, the idea that we would actually, it's, it's a kind of strange transition. We actually think this is actually how social policy should be done. We don't give people grants, we think they should have loans. And we now think it's a normalised bit of the way the world works. And I think we actually do need to address that question. What is this doing to the way our society operates if we actually offer credit as the solution to difficulty? Um, in every strata, even if government is the, 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 the lender of last resort, is that appropriate? Um, and I, I do think there's some really quite interesting questions uh, about um, the whole monthly payment, um, exporting of actually a kind of very middle class model um, to a load of people who haven't functioned that way. Um, and it being an incredibly popular 
policy uh, in political terms um, and really you have a civil service spinning wheels trying to make this work because they know that people have not worked like this, they've not lived like this. Um, potential for it to go pear-shaped is quite gigantic. Um, so I think there are really big questions. I think the purpose of credit, fundamental questions I think as a society we need to address. Why are we lending at every, every opportunity and why do we think people should automatically borrow and when they have a difficulty. Um, I think we, we do need to, to, to be controversial and, and to be brave and to start asking those sorts of questions. Very quick, very quick last point. In that the government is still taking 20% tax off most poor people through VAT yeah. and I think it's time we need to look at our tax regime and switching back towards direct tax and less indirect tax to help the poorest in our society. Okay, thanks very much, Anthony, and indeed the panel. We're now going to invite um, Bishop Peter Selby, who's the Interim Director of the Institute, the St Paul's Institute, to, uh, well, give his reflections, I think, Peter, is that fair to say? Yes, thank you. You want to give me your... Give you this bit. that you can, I think, just leave that here. Right. That's fine. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, first of all... Uh, it, it's very good to see this turnout, and it's very good from the point of view of the Institute to be working with uh, CCLA and uh, sharing in this exercise because I think uh, we need to be both practical and theoretical we, uh, in, in at attending to uh, these issues. Um, uh, when I was researching the, the, the book that I wrote about debt called Grace and Mortgage, um, I um, came upon a person on Tyneside who uh, was uh, set up a credit union. She was set up a credit union actually because um, because of Peter's organisation. She felt that she wanted to stop um, the money that people were paying for credit leaving the community. So she did this and she discovered some very interesting stories that show that finance is really very much dependent on where you're sitting. One of the stories she discovered was that um, uh, of course, one of the problems on this estate was that nobody would insure people because uh, there was a very high crime rate. So uh, they set up a mutual insurance um, organization for, for the estate. And um, it was very popular and people joined. It was really excellent. Um, but what rather nonplussed this, uh, this vicar who set this up, actually, was that uh, one day somebody called at the door and said, um, uh, Father, I wonder if you could um, give me a list of the people who belong to the insurance scheme. And uh, he said, why would you want that? Well, he said, I, w I, wouldn't, want to, I wouldn't want to burgle from anybody that wasn't insured. Um, and um, I, I tell the story because it seems to me that that person was a highly moral individual. <laughs> Uh, and he had a morality. Um, and um, I think it's very important that we don't get into these discussions into the position of talking about each other as though we don't have a morality. You know, there are some of us who do and some of us who don't. And I, I must declare an interest. Uh, I was a member, vice chair of the Ethical Investment Advisory Group of the Church of England, which recommended uh, disinvestment. I was then a member of the uh, Assets Committee of the Church Commissioners, which decided to disinvest from, from Peter's company. Um, not actually because we thought they were horrible people doing horrible things, but because we thought there were some activities from which it was not appropriate um, for, for a church to gain uh, resources. We thought it was actually wrong for us to gain at the expense 
of poor people who had no choice, no other choice. And so we made that decision. And oh, that's been in my mind all through this uh, discussion, and particularly when we came to, to Daniel's last point. Uh, because it seems to me that this discussion um, has majored on a really important uh, area, which is the debt needs, the credit needs of poor people. Um, and in the process of having that conversation, um, we leave out of account the financial behaviour of rich people. Um, that is, if I may say so, the hidden elephant in this room. Um, is that it isn't actually poor people who are the problem. It isn't actually poor people who don't know how to manage their money. Uh, I mean, I think I'm reasonably good at managing my money, actually. But uh, when I hear the stories about really poor people, I know that I couldn't manage it. And so I think it's really important that we understand that the roots of what we're talking about lie in the financial expectations of quite wealthy people. And um, uh, when, um, when Peter talks very uh, accurately and morally about the need to uh, produce a return uh, for your shareholders, um, what that means is we're all complicit in this enterprise. Uh, we all are um, profiting from um, the difficulties which the people with the lowest income levels in our society uh, have to exist on. And, and that's, that's the root of it. And it, it is not the case that, um, that borrowing and lending is an activity that is only thought about uh, in relation to people's desperation. Um, you, can't have a higher you can't get a tertiary education in this country without being in debt. So and that's not, after all, that's not desperation. Um, that's saying that uh, the, the, the proper way to fund this activity um, is by getting into debt. And um, uh, there, there are some results of that. Uh, there are some results of that in declining radicalization of students. Radicalization is now regarded as a serious problem. Actually, it's a serious lack. Uh, the lack of radicalization among students is very serious. Um, and it's a direct result of the fact that they have been transformed into debtors. Um, so I don't... Um, I don't think this discussion, I don't think anything that's happened in this room and any of the activities that are being undertaken by people on our panel and in this room are unimportant or serious or wrong. Uh, I think while we live in the world we live in, um, we all have to make the best fist we can of making the best available to people who otherwise will have no access to the best. Um, but what I'm saying is we have no business suspending our critical faculties in relation to what it is that has produced that situation and continues to sustain it, and the fact that we all have an interest in keeping it going. That's, I think, the truth of the matter that we can't avoid um, in this room. It means, of course, that um, activities such as the establishment of credit unions that Anthony's talked about or the, or the running of doorstep lending for people that want doorstep lending, uh, or the funding of, of good community organisations uh, to make things better for people as far as we possibly can, I don't think we can walk away from doing that. But while we're not walking away, I hope we're not thinking away. Because unless we do think differently and uh, create a, a world in which... Um, uh, 
people have access to the things they need without putting themselves in the position where they are actually mortgaging their future, unless we can invent a world that's different from that, we shall go on profiting not just from the poorest people, that's that we are doing, we shall also be profiting from our grandchildren because we are exploiting their resources and handing them a tab which they will have to pick up. You know, while we're doing that, uh, we may think, we may indeed be helping the poorest people as much as we can, but we're certainly not doing anything to transform the situation into one in which we can actually be proud of living. And I say be proud of living, and I mean this, that uh, speaking, as a, speaking as a believer, um, I, uh, I, I uh, on Sunday morning, I assert um, that everything I enjoy and receive is a gift. Uh, it's not lent to me, it's a gift. Um, and um, every time I then leave that building uh, uh, and, I, and I walk out into the street on a Monday morning, I live a completely different life. Uh, and that's not just me, I live a life in which everything's on loan. And uh, it's all right to uh, spend tomorrow's assets today. It's all right to get into debt and it's all right to get profit from other people's debts. And I think there is a serious issue to be examined about that. And all I, I, I'm not saying that in order to attack uh, anything that anybody's doing up here, only to ask that we all remember <laughs> that we are part of the system that, that profits from the need to do exactly that. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, <clears throat> thank you very much, uh, Peter, for that. We have uh, a little under 10 minutes, and uh, the plan was to um, have some concluding remarks now from our panel. And I think you know, there's been quite a breadth of issues raised, not least uh, by Peter just now, which is really about a completely systemic change uh, that's needed. Anthony. Well, I mean, I think uh, Peter, in my last comment about VAT, I mean, the direct and indirect taxation, I mean, that is something in which uh, we could do. And it addresses the fact that the wealthy in this country could afford to pay more. Uh, and, you know, VAT at 20% is crippling for poor people. They're paying almost 20% of their income in tax. It's a systemic issue, but it's something that came in in the Thatcher years and successive governments have, have made it worse. Uh, and I think we should be looking at that balance. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, well, I have to say I'm, I'm proud of what we do. I think at the end of the day, small amounts of money lent responsibly and borrowed responsibly improve people's standards of living. If we weren't there, some people would have to go without, undoubtedly. And we are there for people generally through thick and thin. Unlike fair-weather friends in the high street or the mainstream, uh, we have there, been there for our customers for 133 years, and I hope we'll be there for a lot longer. And I have to say, it is very different from lending a few hundred pounds uh, once or twice a year to students leaving university with debts of 30 or 40,000 pounds. So let's put it in perspective. Um, profits, I have to say, are a good thing in banking and uh, not a bad thing. We've all seen that. Banks that don't make profits generally require bailing out by the taxpayer. A big part of the problem that we've had is because of uh, our friends in the banking sector in the mainstream have lost a lot of money. So profits made responsibly, I contend, are a good thing and not a bad thing. And I think 
we should all hope that banks make sensible profits in the future and we never have to bail them out again at the end of the day sustainability is what's important our enterprise is not subsidized we don't rely on the taxpayer and that's because at the end of the day we do meet the needs of our customers very well and i hope we continue to do so for for some time to the final point just around reducing the gap between uh, rich and poor i think there's two important things we we can do and we do do firstly uh, both our businesses enable customers to build up a credit history and that's true now of our home collective credit business so we subscribe our customers payment records into the credit bureaus those who uh, pay regularly and pay well build up a good record so ultimately that should allow them to move up the ladder and certainly in our credit card business then uh, rebuilding credit history is a very important part of um, of the value proposition I'd also agree very strongly that savings are a very important part of um, reducing that gap and I'm pleased to say that Provident uh, does now offer saving products through our Vanquist Bank subsidiary so we don't have a full range of savings products it's internet only but uh, we have put our toe in the water into the savings market and that may well develop into something more in the future. Thanks Peter. I suppose as a concluding remark um, is going back to my trustees and my organization's interest in the question of what is the right use of money um, and it is something we, we circle around and come back to. And I think actually it is a, a central question. And I think it's not just about ethical investment. It's actually about the way that we function. Because money is a way of expressing ourselves in the world. And I think it's quite important, we as individuals as well as organizations. Um, and I think it's, it is an actual, a personal question about how um, this method of expressing ourselves um, does that and what we are saying for the use of our, our money. Now we may come up with different answers to that question and I think that's part of the debate and the richness of the debate um, and I think that debate needs to be a respectful debate um, and, uh, but I do feel it's the vital question that needs to, to come back round. I mean, in my uh, our, our view, actually in our vision, um, it was point number four, which is actually the savings question, which is we have talked about a bit here. Um, I think it is about building people's resilience to a lot of what's been thrown at them. Um, and if we can and actually move away from things, we had something called the Savings Gateway, which was um, actually dismantled, uh, unfortunately, by the, Conserv by the coalition government. Um, and uh, I think it was a great loss. Uh, it was really about saving small amounts and encouraging and making that easy and that those savings being matched and, and it being seen as a joint enterprise. I think there's something about encouraging people and, and enabling them to save tiny amounts of money irregularly in convenient ways that we are missing a trick um, in terms of actually building a culture that is not uh, about borrowing but about what you actually are able to put aside yourself and that self-reliance that comes from that. So I think um, the right and also the decisions you make about the use of that money because it's yours. Um, so I think the right use of money for us as a galvanizing idea is quite a powerful one and I would leave that with you. Thank you. Very briefly. And just a word about credit unions. The process I was describing about the expansion project and the building of the capacity in the credit union sector, the long-term game is that we will have <coughs> universal coverage, that you'll have a, a functioning credit union in every county and every major metropolis, rather like the old mutual banks of the late 19th century that served their local area. And the thing about a mutual is it's the strong and the weak, they get together to help each other, a strong Christian uh, message that. 
and, uh, but equally then ask people to take responsibility for themselves because the people who make most use of a credit union are people who do take responsibility, who understand the notion of deferred gratification which is very important uh, and something which our society has lost uh, in all sorts of ways and we need to get that back. And uh, so the future is bright for credit unions. I encourage everybody to get involved in their local credit union. And I look forward to the day in 20 years' time when you won't need to ring fence retail banking because you'll have a viable alternative, your local credit union. Uh, I, I agree the future could be very bright. We did some research, and we're going to finish in a minute. We did some research earlier this year which tells us there is a gap of about £6.7 billion per year uh, to be invested at the very local. So whilst I'd say, in theory, I think the future for CDFIs too is very bright, I don't think we should underestimate the sheer scale of the challenge that lies ahead. And I'm very much with Peter on the need for actually some quite systemic change. I think it's very interesting tonight that uh, many uh, uh, absolutely... Uh, correct, interesting ideas have been shared. There's been little mention of the role of the banks and the might of those that are really driving the financial services industry. And um, we don't have time to discuss it now. But whether you know one of the solutions for the UK is to embark on a community reinvestment type approach for the short term, but look in the longer to something about mutualisation of the financial services industry. Obviously, we have the Labour Party very keen to promote regional banks, community banks. This would, I think, whether it's as systemic as Peter was referring to, I don't know, but it would certainly put on, t turn on its head the way in which people currently view the provision of financial services. Thank you very much to all of you. Uh, I think it's been a, a rich and full discussion. Am I right? I think there is a record of the discussion that will be on the Institute's website. Very big thank you to CCLA uh, for hosting the event and for providing what I think just out there is going to be some refreshments and nibbles. Thank you. And thank you to you.